Welcome to In the Wake with Whitley. Here on this podcast, we cover mental health, life lessons, mindset growth, and tons of storytelling. Together, we'll laugh, we'll cry, and everything in between. I'm your host, Whitley Rogers. I'm a certified life coach and mental health advocate. I'm also a survivor of sexual and mental abuse. I'm here to open up those conversations that are normally uncomfortable or hush-hush in society. Keep listening for bits and pieces of my personal journey and insights along with other interviewees. This is a trigger warning to preface this episode. This episode may include explicit content, graphic details, or heavier, sensitive, and mature topics. Listen at your own risk and take precaution if you suffer with a mood or mental disorder, suicidal ideation, or a victim of abuse, rape, or trauma. The following episode could contain such content. The last thing I want is for this episode to trigger or provoke negative thoughts or feelings for you. Today, I have April Hill here with me. She has her own podcast, actually, and I've been listening to her episodes and her story and I'm blown away by her strength. And so I'm really happy that she's here with us today to continue telling her story. So who are you, April? And what is your story? Let's dive in. Thanks, Whitley. I really appreciate you inviting me on to your podcast. I'm a really big fan of yours, and it's really quite an honor. So thank you. For me, I like to really kind of start from the beginning. While I don't feel our past defines us, I believe it's a part of the foundation of who we become as human beings. And saying that it can be used for good or bad. My story is an extreme experience of childhood trauma from a really young age. My abuse started just before I turned three and went on till I was a little over the age of five. So for just a couple of years, but really during a very fragile time for a young little soul and mind. And the trauma that I went through was something that I feel most people probably couldn't even watch, let alone endure. And it took a huge hand in making me who I am today. A lot of what I went through later in life was, I believe, an impact of that trauma. I suffer from addiction and I'm in recovery now. I have a couple of years sober, which is a miracle within itself. And the abuse that I went through was by my father. And then there's kind of a strange family dynamic that I had even after the age of five with my mother and my grandmother. There was a lot of depression in my household. And just to kind of touch on my abuse, it was molestation as well as verbal abuse, emotional abuse, other forms of physical abuse, and also some shorter periods of time with being kept either you know, up high on top of a refrigerator for days at a time or hours at a time and then also in closets having food withheld from me. So I definitely carry a lot of that. I will say one thing is that I actually struggle with the fact that I don't I don't have all my memories. So what mm. that looks like for me is kind of just that 
I block a lot of things. I actually didn't gain my full, even flashback memories of the abuse I endured until I was in my early 20s. And then that presented a whole host of issues, having flashback memories and not being completely prepared. And saying that when I was little, there was investigations via my school, social workers. I was taken in for lots of studying just to try to figure out what was going on in the household. And there was definitely all the flagging for that, but I wasn't able to vocalize or explain that to anyone as a child. And some of what I talk about in my podcast or what I really like to talk about with just anyone who's suffering or women that I work with is the fact that we feel a lot of shame surrounding that and it all turns inwards. And even as a child, I thought a lot of what I was doing, whether that was acting out abuse with dolls or stuffed animals, whatever it might be, I felt like I was bad and weird and strange and not okay. And I internalized all that. And it was a horrible place to live, like kind of within your own little mind. And it lent over into adult life later on. I went on to, was very shy. I wasn't capable of processing emotions and had a lot of rage pent up in me. I had different occurrences in my early teens that led me to kind of fall into the wrong group and started dabbling in marijuana and some light alcohol use and then a little bit of harder drugs, just experimenting. And then from there, continuously kind of made bad decisions. And I jumped first and thought later pretty much (laughs) with everything that I did. I don't think I cared that much about myself. Deep down, I think that's what a lot of people, whether it's addiction or trauma, there's a lack of self-love and almost feeling that you don't deserve good things. And it enabled me to make crazy decisions and I got married young, had a daughter young, that marriage fell apart, picked probably the wrong guy, the wrong time. I was a single mom working multiple jobs and I ended up slowly kind of recklessly using alcohol, picking the wrong men, all the things that you would typically see someone with that kind of a history go through. And then it was later in life that the partying continued and even minorly successful business jobs and things like that. I ended up finding ways to blow up my life. And well, I didn't know how to have a healthy relationship with men. I continued to have children, had a second husband and ended up through that toxic relationship, just going ahead and entering into full blown alcoholism. And that was a horrible place to live. The chains of alcoholism were too soft for me to feel initially. I thought I was just drinking like everybody else before they were too strong to break. And I fell really hard into that. And I didn't put my children first and I wasn't the best version of myself. And eventually it all came crashing down around me. It started to really crash down around me in my early 30s. And from there, I went ahead and I entered my first rehab. And then the battle with getting well kind of began. Wow. You have endured and overcome so much, and I am just breathtaking by your strength through it all that you have survived. So 
what did your battle with addiction look like? And do you feel like that was a result of your trauma of trying to cope with that? Let's talk about that and unpack that a little bit. I do. I feel like I was always self-medicating and trying to feel whole. I feel like at the end of the day, I never felt okay. I, as a kid, I used to have stomach aches every day. I thought I had ulcers <laughs> waiting for the bus. I felt like an alien. I felt like no one else should like me. There's no reason for that. You don't feel okay after you go through those things. And fast forward later in life, I like to say now, like I'm a very motivated, driven, solution-oriented person. So I found the solution, the false profit, the false solution in my head. You know, this alcohol made me feel great. It made me feel okay. It made me feel arrogant and pompous. And (laughs) Oh, full of myself and okay. And just like I fit in finally. And also just numbed out the constant pain that comes with if you don't work through those kind of past traumas or even the broken relationships or the everyday things that we all face as people because life is tough. Mm -hmm. Life doesn't always hand us roses and we go through different things. That's why I feel like, yes, trauma is a very big indicator of later on having addiction. For me in the program of A, and recovery, I meet tons of people that grew up in great households that find themselves in addiction later. And addiction can happen to anyone. It is more likely to happen to someone that has suffered trauma, but it fills a little hole and it felt great. And then it felt great till it didn't feel great anymore. And then there's a point where it just stops working for you Mm -hmm. and it makes things so much worse than they were even before. Whatever problem you were drinking over, whatever heartache, whatever emptiness you go out and for me I was a blackout drinker and I like to really relate this to the fact that I was so comfortable living in shame like that's all I knew from the age of when my brain is actually wiring and synapses are being formed, I feel ashamed. It's very hard for me not to fall into a pattern of shame because I'm comfortable there whether I like it or not. So alcohol gave me this great ability being a blackout drinker to go do ridiculous things and then feel shame, not be the best version of myself. Who I really am isn't the person that did a lot of different actions and things during the time that I was drinking. So it allowed me to just fall right back into that cycle but as far as like how it looked it's crazy because as a kid that I just wanted to be normal and find happiness and of course mm-hmm. maybe romance someday and like think of the family I was gonna have and the differences and you don't think to yourself like great I'm gonna be this raging alcoholic like that's not right. at all what you think and it's crazy how it can happen to you I do have alcoholism that runs in my family on my dad's side he had a sister that killed herself and an alcoholic he was an alcoholic so it definitely does run in my family and I just I went from being probably more of a party girl someone who experiments drinks here and there goes a little bit too hard sometimes to just a daily drinker and I was physically dependent on it and I was high functioning for quite a while but again until I wasn't and there was a lot of wreckage that being drunk half the time caused and causes you. Right so what was the climax or turning point for you? I know your podcast is called Abuse Recovery Success So how did you start your journey of healing and recovery? 
kind of like it was almost like a mountain climax. It took a couple of years to get me there, maybe even more than a couple of years. But essentially, in my early 30s, my marriage was falling apart. And there was a plethora of reasons and a lot on him. And then of course, some on me. And that's when my drinking really ticked up to that real daily, everyday thing. And I sought help. It was just too bad. It was affecting everyone around me and making poor decisions and just basically a train wreck. And I went to rehab Sierra Tucson, which is a fantastic facility out in Tucson. And I went for 37 days. I have it tattooed on my arm, November 16, 2015. And that was the real beginning. I definitely had read stuff and thought, mm, you probably have a problem. Definitely had been to a couple of AA meetings, but it was like, still like, no, you don't have a problem. Like you're okay. <laughs> Cut back, whatever. But this was like my aha moment. And a lot happened in that facility. What was great is they also treat for trauma. And so right away, they put me on the dual track for addiction and trauma. And I did a lot of work there. With that place, I really felt like I was going to be first time, last time. You go to rehab and a lot of people come in and it's their second, third, fourth time. And I was just blown away. And I thought, no, like I was frustrated when they talk about relapse, have relapse meetings. And I, I just thought, why are you planting that seed? And I'll be the first to tell you that I did not I did not make it that time. I went for 37 days. We did a lot of work on the trauma as well. They told me that they have neuroscientists there and they study your brain. And they said, basically, you have all five markers of PTSD. And he was really shocked. He said he's only seen that in 5% of his career, even more of the markers hit than sometimes a war veteran. And I guess the reasoning for that was because when you're that young, it's when your brain is literally wiring itself. So I don't react to the same situations like someone else. I'm just wired differently. So I have to do a lot of work to process things and manage some of my rage or emotions. And in doing so, I learned a lot. I think it set a great stage being there. I came out really strong. I went to AA, then I got out Christmas Eve, stayed in a hotel, went to a meeting that day. I willingly went to get testing for alcohol because I was now in a custody battle with, he's my husband now, but at the time we were separated and I made it six months. And I was going to meetings, but I just wasn't there. And sometimes in the program, we say, when you're ready, you're ready. Like mm -hmm. you can beat yourself up forever about it, but I made some key mistakes that I can recognize and share with others now. I, I didn't change enough. I still hung out with some of the same people. And I started to let my mind play tricks on me. And the insanity is I told myself, like, you never had a problem with ecstasy. <laughs> so you could probably take ecstasy once in a while. And that's because, you know, why would I want to do that? Because I still had friends that partying was still a part of their life. And I felt left out and I didn't make all the necessary changes. And I went back out. I did. And then the really tricky part for me was I drank normally for almost a year, like normally in the sense of maybe a couple drinks, one night, two nights a week, maybe three, but never really getting sloppy, not drinking daily, like for a whole year. And then rapidly the second year back out, I just went down to farther than I'd ever been before. Towards the end, it got to be basically drinking in the morning so that I could stave off the shaking, 
drinking in the afternoon to keep it away again, then drinking for fun or drinking just to drink at night and then starting the cycle all over again, really just decimating my life. I mean, towards the end of that last second year being back out, I was in and out of the hospital for trying to detox and it was awful. And basically I finally just had enough. I knew I was dry heaving over toilets in the morning. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. And at the time I had my business only for a year or two. And I was like, I'm going to lose everything. I think quite frankly, had I waited even three to four more weeks, I would have lost my business because I had made poor financial decisions and even staff decisions. And I basically when I called my sponsor and they took me to the hospital and then I, I just got sober, but I was, I was different and I let go. And I knew like without a shadow of a doubt, I have a problem. I'm not okay. Like this. I can't go on like this. I'm not going to make it. You just know without a shadow of a doubt that you're not going to make it. For me, it was a higher power saying like, I can't do this to my kids and I want to be okay. I'm not bad. I'm not the bad little girl that something happened to. Like, I deserve happiness and joy and freedom. And at the end of the day, alcohol wasn't fun. It was a master. It was killing me. It was horrible. My body was covered in bruises from blackout, bumping into furniture, whatever. And I had to just like be physically ill for weeks till my body reset. And just I would go to AA every day listen to four hours a day of whatever a speakers, YouTube, anything I could get my hands on day by day is really what they say. And and that's what worked for me. Wow. So do you feel like you you had to hit rock bottom to begin recovering and healing fully to where you are now? Yes, I do. I absolutely do feel that I had to feel those lows had I not hit rock bottom, it would have been, honestly, I would have probably just kept going. And I mean, there's more of a rock bottom. Like we always say, everybody has a different bottom, right? There are people mm-hmm. that end up homeless. There are people that end up in all kinds of different situations. Maybe they even go to jail, prison, whatever. Like everyone has their own low. For me, it's more what it does to your soul. That's your own low. You've got to determine Mm -hmm. that. But for me, I wasn't me. The way people looked at me was so awful. I had a girl that I had recruited to work for me when I first started my business and then left during that time. And she, she first met me, she saw this young, beautiful mother and businesswoman and was wanted to be like me. And towards the end of my drinking, she just felt pity and disdain for me. And like, what are you doing to your life and watching that? And it felt awful to hear. And I wanted to never have anyone look at me like that again. And honestly, now people don't look at me like that. And that's what I want to share with other people is no matter how bad it's gotten for you, there is light on the other side. And you can work and get your way to a place where people respect you even admire you and where you never have to see someone look at you that way again. That is such a powerful message. As you've moved forward on your journey through balancing your work, your lifestyle, family, friends, recovery, how do you take care of yourself? Through all of this healing, what does your self-care routine or practices consist of? 
I am very aggressively and supporting of self-care. <laughs> I own a day spa, med spa, and salon. So like right now, as we do this interview, I have a deep conditioning Olaplex treatment on my head. I actually got a facial this morning because my anniversary is today with that husband that we talked about earlier. <laughs> And we're going out tonight to dinner and stuff. So for me, I'm super into like, not to sound frilly, but I'm into a bubble bath. I'm into making time to give back to me because I spent so much time at a bar or drinking alcohol or destroying my life that why not nurture myself and not right. let myself get to a state where I don't feel well. And a big thing for me too is working out. I work out a lot. I also love food though. So I took my boys to Cheesecake Factory last night and I had a hot fudge sundae. So I try to mostly balance things. And I know that that's what everyone says, but there is a way. While I went to last night to have a hot fudge sundae, I also woke up this morning and trained in the park doing an agility hit workout. Then I have days where I work back to back from eight to eight, 12 hours. I'll watch myself and kind of just see what I'm doing too much of any one thing because that is one thing I have to watch out for because I am extremist and I have an addictive personality and I do tend to go at it with the coffee or go at it with the sweets or working out whatever so I try to look at it and always be self-aware of like okay you're doing too much of one thing let's balance that out yeah I think that's so important to realize that you have a multifaceted layer of needs and it's not just a one track thing for self care. And Whitley, I think probably much like for you, like big thing for me that I find to be driving and impassioning is that I really want to help others because mm -hmm. I feel like in some ways to correct all the wrongs, why not try to help other people in the same place? And so a big thing that I'm just embarking on right now is relationship with Streetlight USA, which is an anti-human trafficking organization that's based here in Phoenix, Arizona. So I'm really excited about that. They help girls that have been victims of sex trafficking from the age of 13 to 17, and they rehabilitate them. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I have just gotten through all my clearances and I go for my orientation this Saturday. And then I'm actually going to just volunteer on the campus. And then hopefully as things evolve, I'll be able to find different ways to help the organization fundraise. But I think that's a big part of self-care too, because if you're going and helping others in those kind of situations or whatever's relevant to you, it's hard to find yourself in self-pity or misery when you mm -hmm. know that you're helping and impacting and, and also what others are going through and you make it less about you and more about the whole of all of us. Absolutely. And I think it's a beautiful thing to be able to turn your pain into light and help others. And by sharing your story, you are helping others and letting them know that they're not alone. So what are the stigmas or myths surrounding addiction, trauma, abuse? You mentioned people looking at you differently, being misunderstood. What does that look like? 
I mean, oh gosh, the stigmas, I think with abuse, I'm sure it kind of varies from person to person. But what I feel is people kind of expect you to know like what you're feeling. And as a victim of abuse, like that varies from day to day. And for me, at least part that's unknown that surrounds my abuse, the part I don't remember, that's horrible. It's an extreme weight to carry almost only half knowing yourself. I don't know how to explain it. So I think sometimes people just they look at you and you've been through abuse they want to tell you like they feel bad for you I don't know it's like you don't even want to hear that sometimes it's hard unless you've been through it and then I guess the stigma with addiction that I can really explain is that it's not a choice I don't care if you want to say the person shouldn't have tried it I mean at least whatever different drug of choice you're talking about it's really not Nobody wants to be a slave to something else like that and to have it rip apart their life. And I think the stigma is just that as much as nowadays people want to be like all recovery forward and positive about it and sound like they get it. I don't know. I feel like there's still that stigma of being bad or that you asked for it almost Mm -hmm. that you wanted that. And that's not the case. And it's frustrating, but I guess all I can do is try to be vocal as heck about it. That's what I decided to do is, you know what, I'm not going to run from this. I'm going to put it out there and people need to be aware of it because it'll happen to someone that you know, whether family member, friend, this is an epidemic and it's a sad one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to just have more empathy and compassion towards these things that just because you think you understand it doesn't mean you do. And if you haven't been there personally, don't speak as if you have, because that definitely contributes to the stigmas. So do you have triggers or trauma that linger or come up from both your abuse and addiction? I sure do. I have all kinds. (laughs) I like to say I'm a minefield now. Um, I try to manage it. Gosh darn, I do. But at the end of the day, I have a lot of them. I'll say this. I used to really struggle with rage as a child. I used to break things constantly. And even to the point where the therapist that was involved with the abuse case was like, just give her like a stack of old plates or whatever. And if she's having something going on emotionally, have her go outside and throw it do whatever I don't throw things like that's actually something to be really proud of like <laughs> maybe once every couple of years I throw some once like a year ago I threw a pair of headphones I do manage all the rage I'm, I'm not too sharp but the triggers would probably be anything that makes me feel trapped I think that's definitely related to being trapped when I was abused and having no control over the situation so that can even come in business if I feel trapped in a certain way but in some ways Whitley I have to say it's kind of good because I'm very good at getting out of things I'm very Mm -hmm. good at navigating where most people say there's no solution gosh I'm like no we're gonna figure it out I think it can be a positive and a negative triggers. I will say for the drinking, trigger would be, it's going to sound weird, but good weather. We live in Arizona and there was a time where during good weather, that's a lot of people drink around here, whether you're at some outdoor event, whatever. Also, sometimes, strangely enough, when good things happen, and I can't figure out, I've done a lot of work on this, if it's the part of me that is that shamed little girl that wants to sabotage good stuff. What I do is I just, I remember exactly what I told you, how I want people to look at me and how I don't want them to look at me. And I still have that sick feeling of the physical addiction. So I can 
pull that because my sponsor says there's drink time and drink time can always come for you no matter how many years you have. And you'll hear a variety of people. Some people say the obsession to drink has completely been lifted from them or use whatever. I lie in the group of it's for the most part gone, but on rare occasion, there's definitely moments of a little bit of a craving. I wouldn't say a craving where I'm just going to go out and I want to do it, do it. But it's more like, I think, looking for an escape. So Mm -hmm. at that point, that's where I really pull in from my toolbox with my self care. And I say, okay, is this a time I need to go work out? Is this a time I need to like eat a box of chocolates? Whatever it is that I think is best for me in a healthier manner than what I used to do to cope and medicate. That's what I do. And not I'll put on some AA or hit a meeting or just spend time with my kids. They do come up and I think people shouldn't be afraid of that. They should just try to develop different ways to cope with it. I loved how you described that of kind of where you hit the fork in the road of you want to be doing this one thing, but you shift gears of I'm actually going to eat a box of chocolates or work out and cope in a healthier way that won't lead to destruction. So what does your life look like now compared to a year ago, five years ago? Let's reflect on your journey and how far you've come and how you've grown and changed. Oh my God, I have been thinking about that a lot lately because it's so different. Wow, I mean, gosh, it's crazy. After I got out of rehab, I actually picked up smoking cigarettes, which is so crazy because (laughs) I had always hated cigarettes and people couldn't believe it. So I picked that up and then took drinking back up and it was horrible. So I mean, there was a lot of unhealthiness. How my life looks now is healthy relationship. My husband is also not drinking now. He didn't really have a problem like I, but he had his own bag of things and issues that went on. And so we have a pretty sober household. Our kids are happy. My business is thriving and doing well. It's so funny because even the culture within my business is different because back those years ago when I was still using, I had a lot of partiers that worked for me, go figure. And so we used to go out, we used to drink. And now I'm in a space where everyone's pretty, not straight laced. I mean, I don't want to make everyone stop. I mean, people have their own lives. They go out, they do stuff, but I've attracted different people. And I think that that's something we forget too, is how many different factors come to play in our life, but we attract who we are to us. I think I have great people around me. I'm healthy physically. I'm doing things. I'm giving back. I'm financially much more stable, better. I don't know. Every day I look around and I think I can't believe I came from there to here. And I also, for me, I do have a higher power. And so I give my higher power a lot of credit. And I go to that place when I don't feel strong. I'm not so self-absorbed to think I just created this all by myself, I guess. I feel like it takes a village. I've had a lot of really great people in my life, a great sponsor, people in recovery that have all really helped me to change into the person I always wanted to be and who I think I was meant to be. That gives me so much hope. So I do want to ask your thoughts on AA and your recovery and meetings. I would say this is probably a lot like my Christianity and hopefully like my sponsors don't listen to this and kill me. (laughs) I'm Christian, but I'm not, this is going to sound bad. I'm not like super like a Bible thumper. I'm kind of like take it with a grain of salt, make it into my own beautiful thing. And I don't believe every aspect of it, if if that makes sense. And Mm -hmm. AA is probably similar to me. I don't want to discount it in any way because it saved my ass for lack of better words. Trying to get sober. Honestly, I can't believe I did it. It was so hard. And 
then it was AA that really was the leading force of that. But now, two years later, I definitely still go to meetings. I'm still somewhat involved, but I'm not as involved as I used to be. And and then I think that could probably just ebb and flow. Like, who knows? Maybe fast forward a year from now, I'll be having some rough times and I'll need to lean in. I think everybody needs to do what works for them. I just think, hey, AA has done a lot for millions of people out there. And it's done so for a reason. So I think the program is something to take into consideration if you have a problem for sure. Interesting. So to kind of wrap up, what do you want listeners to take away from this episode? And further, what would you say to someone else struggling? I would want them to take away the fact that you don't have to be perfect and you don't have to be found. And what I mean by that is you can be lost right now and that's okay because some of the greatest influencers and kindest, most wonderful people spent much of their time lost, as did I. So I would say like when you're in the throes of addiction or when you are still someone that maybe hasn't worked through any of your abuse, you feel so tiny and so small and you feel like almost it's not even worth it. And it is worth it. I don't know how to explain it because you hear that so much from so many people and when you're in it, it doesn't feel like it could be. But I would just really want people to know that you can get well, but it does take a lot of effort. Healing is not something that happens overnight. It takes time day by day, but it's worth it. I mean, I would say one of my favorite sayings ever is just never, ever give up because you're worth fighting for. And God is your God or whatever it is that you follow. You're not here just to be squandered or to be left. You have a purpose and it's worth finding out what that purpose is. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I also would want to ask, what would you say to the support system, the people that love someone who may be in an abusive situation or struggling with addiction? What would you say to those people? It's funny that you asked that because I actually know a couple people going through having a family member in, in that. And I would say, First of all, it's not your fault. And there's really not much that you can do except love that person, but don't make the mistake of enabling them as mm-hmm. a method of love. And that is the biggest thing. Whatever you're doing to facilitate anything with them and their addiction or their pain, you need to step away and maybe cut that off in any way you can and let that person figure this out because that's the thing that makes the other person feel so much pain and sometimes the cycle can't be broken. So I would say love them enough to not enable them. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. All right. So I usually close my episodes with a little song recommendation because personally that has been very powerful in my own healing. So do you have a song that deeply resonates with you and your story? I do. I was thinking about that earlier and this is great. So I have one tattoo mm-hmm. and only one on my whole body and it says hello from the other side. And then it has that date I went into Sierra Tucson 11, 16, 15. So while that wasn't my set sober date, I consider that when I really started my journey, like we talked about. Hello from the other side is Adele's song. Mm-hmm. And it's 
funny because people never really get it. I think maybe it's the love, the heartache, you're healing from that. Or a lot of people guess that I think, oh, did you have someone pass? For me, it's crazy. I was leaving Sierra Tucson. I mean, I'm getting the goosebumps telling you. My life had been changed in there. I'm driving home to no kids, no access to my kids. It's Christmas Eve day. And this song started playing, Hello from the Other Side. That's when it was popular. I blared it, the windows down. And I felt like I will never be the same. For me, the song is hello from the other side. Hello from the darkness to the light. Hello from the other side. I now had a veil lifted on that barrier of not knowing I was really an alcoholic to knowing and having all this new information and tools and being ready to start my life over again. And to this day, I'm so glad it's the only tattoo I have on my body. And it's kind of nice that nobody really knows what it is. (laughs) I dig in and really know them, but hello from the other side. It never stops being authentic for me. I know that that was the moment I really had the beginning of change. And now here I am really, really, truly living on the other side. And it is such a beautiful life. Wow. I have the biggest smile and I also have chills. I love that. So if people want to reach out to you, connect with you, come to your spa, where do you want them to find you? Well, if they're at all interested in the podcast or Streetlight USA or anything like that, they can find me at abuserecoverysuccess.com or abuserecoverysuccess.org. My podcast is Abuse Recovery Success. My salon is thehillsexperience.com, and that is our salon, med spa, beauty lounge, everything you could want to know about beauty. We also have an online store as well. Awesome. I will link those in the show notes below for anyone that wants to find you and your work. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate your honesty and vulnerability in sharing your story. It is so refreshing and so inspiring. Thanks, Whitley. I appreciate you. All right. That's all we have for you guys today. Thanks for listening and tune in next time. I hope this podcast left you feeling empowered, better understood, and less alone in this crazy thing called life. If you like what you hear, leave a rating or review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening and tune in next time.